Just two good old boys. Two good old boys. Never meeting the harm. Be sorry, never saw the hand, no hair since the day they was born. Straighten the curves. Straighten the curves. Flatten the heels. The coffee might get him, but the Lord never will. We're casting away. Welcome to this week's show. If you are new to the show, welcome. Good to have you on board the bus. This show looks at finding the best people from around the world of all different ilks and lifestyles, people who we think have their mojo working in some aspect of their world. We talk to them, we find out what they do, how they do it, so we can apply it to our world to get our mojo working. Or maybe, and I think this is really important, maybe even taking these findings from an eclectic bunch of people Take them yourself and help somebody else. Be of service to somebody else. Help them get their mojo working. It's good to have you on the bus. The man behind the wheel driving the big red bus we have known to come and love, the Mojo Radio Show. His name is Robbo. Are we in gear? We are in gear and my mojo's going. Can I tell you why just quickly? Here we go. Yeah, go on. Robbo's MasterChef Masterclass. Before the show this morning, I was flicking around on Facebook and I came across this story about a Danish chef who ages his beef, his beef fillets, in salted butter. So he basically encases these beef fillets in in a salted butter and then leaves them for six months to age. Then he takes slices and fries them in the pan in the butter that they've been aging in and serves them up. And can I just say, I was inspired and my mojo was going. That's disgusting. Uh, <laughs> AP, welcome. Thank you, Bertie. Nice to be here, chaps. And of course, the sanity in this little shindig we have, our automated studio assistant, Lola. Hello, Lola. Hello, boys. All right, the team is all on board. Before we start, this is tragic. Robbo, you're not going to like this. Oh, no. Yeah, this is bad. Got a letter from Mike, who is one of our super fans, Mm. a very good fan of the show. Actually, Mike attended our dinner as a winner. Yeah. He said, he writes to the boys, this is a national disgrace. Robbo will be devastated to know that Tim Tam has been knocked off its perch as the number one biscuit in Australia. No way. What could possibly do that? Jats crackers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's this dieting I, fad. That's what I it is. I replied with one word from us just saying rigged. Yeah, absolutely. 
Jats crackers. Come on, the only thing that Jats crackers are good with is a bit of French onion dip. Now, we also got some mail this week from Ian, who runs an organisation called Granted Digital Marketing. And the reason I'm reading this out is because it does remind us that different to commercial radio, podcasts have a history and you can go back through the back catalogue. He wrote... Uh, I just left a review on iTunes. Good on you, mate. Thank you for doing that. We have a lot of reviews and we appreciate it. That's our payment for doing the show, basically. Mm. And wanted to get in touch a bit more formally to both congratulate you and thank you for an amazing show. I've been listening for over a year now and slowly working through the back catalogue as well to find every ounce of gold that has been deposited. Great note, but I think this is a good lesson for all of us that we we do mention a lot of past guests who have dropped gold. The good thing about podcasts is you can go through the back catalogue and also there is a feature on iTunes where you can save your favourites. If you get a cracking show like Ray Cash Care, you love it, it's the one you want to play in the gym to give yourself a kick in the butt to get it done, you can just save it, it's then offline, it's always there for prosperity and also it's just good to have your faves there to go back to like your favourite song on Spotify. So um, thanks boys for getting in touch and uh, dropping us a bit of a note. Nice. Now, here's my final little bit of housekeeping Mm. before we get into the show. You're going to take that apron off now? Is that what you're saying? And this show is about beautiful questions. And this is a question, but it's certainly not a beautiful question, but it's a question nonetheless. Right. Okay. (laughs) What do you get when you combine running, beer, and a marathon? Uh, Golden Oldies rugby? (laughs) I don't know. If we go back a couple of shows ago, we spoke to Martin Parnell, right? Mm. Do you remember, remember we had the idea? Now, Martin Parnell is in the Guinness Book of Records. He ran 250 marathons in a year. So mm. he's in the record books. Mm. Remember, we had that idea yeah. of running between pubs in London. Stop at every pub in the marathon. And play loop. darts. Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, get this. Has he invited us? New Balance have actually stolen our idea. Oh, of course they And have. they have now opened a pub and partnered with fitness tracker Strava. Now, Strava is a fitness app that tracks your cycling or running and you compete against your mates and blah, blah, blah. Uh. And they've done what they call an activation, which is such a wanky promotions term, an activation, right. between the two of them. So the idea is you download your app, Strava, you train, run, and if you clock up enough miles, you get free beer at a pub. <laughs> <laughs> this is serious. And this has all been done as an activation, a promotion, to get people to take part in the London Marathon. So if you're a London marathoner, you get rewarded for training for the marathon with free beer. So they've taken over this pub and it's a, it's a real life thing. Now, the other thing that's just ridiculous is... You don't even have to hit your target. If you only get 50%, you still get pints. <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> That's a bit crazy. That's and very of course, crazy. Whilst you're there, mm. there'll also be community workouts as well as a new balanced display of the latest running gear inside the pub. So, Of course there is. I don't know. I just don't get this <laughs> no. whole thing. I, I think know. it's a little bit weird, but also we should, get it. we should get money for this because that was our idea. I know, exactly. We need to write them a letter and send them a cease and desist from our lawyers, I think. <laughs> cease and desist. <laughs> 
You know, the other thing that got, gets my gurgles, now you've got me onto beer. Have you seen Cult and Draft have just put out an alcohol-free beer? Well, Heineken have done that. Heineken have done that as well, and right. it's been so successful, you can't get it. Right. My question is why? <laughs> no, no, Sorry. I'll tell you why, right? I had this idea five years ago, and I've got a guy who works in the alcohol industry that I pitched the idea to. So he, not that he took it, but the reason is that if you go to an event, you can only drink so many beers if you're driving, but mm. you still want to have something in your hand mm. and you still want to feel as though you're part of the party. So having an alcohol-free beer in a beer bottle that actually tastes good, if what happens is then if you're off the booze or you can't drink past a certain number because you're driving or you've got something on next day like you're playing footy or whatever, that actually is a big market for it. Yeah, okay. The next one after that, I believe, that I pitched was it should be good for you. So rather than just be full of empty calories or whatever, how do you make that look like a beer, taste like a beer, but actually do something for like you? Like a kombucha or something. Yeah, but the yeah. problem is you can't, if you have more than one kombucha, you start, your guts will blow up. Yeah. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. This week's guest is a questionologist. Oh, really? Is that a thing? No, but he right. calls himself that, which I think is great. I love that. Warren Berger is our guest. He's an innovation expert and a questionologist. Now, he studied hundreds of the world's foremost innovators, entrepreneurs, people at the front end who are coming up with new ideas to understand how do they ask, not just ask questions, but how do they ask great questions, generate original ideas, and in essence, all this is about solving someone's problem. He's written 11 books and his writing appears all the time in Fast Company, HBR, the Harvard Business Review, Wired Magazine, which is no mean feat, and the New York Times. There used to be a journal, which we'll talk about during the show. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk to Warren about the book, A More Beautiful Question. And as someone who each week gets to interview people around the world, I just I, this is a topic that is very dear to my heart. And we're going to find out how do you unlock the power of curiosity to help us be better, better or as the Queenslanders say, betterer in every aspect of our lives. Warren, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. When people ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? Uh, I like to tell them I'm a questionologist. And then, and then usually they, they look at me with a very questioning look on their face as in, you know, <laughs> what is that? Is that, is that really a thing? Does that really exist? And uh, the answer is honestly, no. It, I mean, I've, I've, the term is something I've, I've kind of been using. Uh, it's kind of a made up term, but the idea behind it is very real. And, you know, which is that questioning is a hugely important field. Uh, people really should be making up a professional study of it as a as an art and a science so there ought to be a a field called questionology and there isn't yet but i'm i'm trying to make that happen i hopefully over time um i will uh you know attract other questionologists and we will establish a, a field but so so basically as a questionologist what i do is just try to learn everything i can about the um the power of asking questions and how you get better at it, and all of those things. When you say that to somebody, and so I'm a questionologist, what typically follows from their part, Warren? Because I think this sets up the whole discussion about curiosity. Do people then lean in and ask you questions to explain? 
Yeah, they do. They get they get very interested. Yeah, the other thing, the other reaction I get is you you find out how people feel about questioning right away when you say that. And you know, a lot of people feel really good about questioning. A lot of people say, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm someone who's always been a a, a questioner. I I'm I was always the person in the group that always asked more questions and annoyed people because I was asking too many questions. Um, and then there are other people who are like, who might have a slightly uh, different attitude. They might say, well, you know, I, I don't see why it's so important. Uh, you know, everybody asks questions, so it's just a natural thing. So why, why make a big deal out of it? So, so I get reactions either at those two ends or somewhere in between. So you re- speaking of questions, and everybody asks questions. It leads me to what I want to know about your career, your former career as a journalist. Now, you're a journalist for New York Times, Wired Magazine. Say you're in a room and there are 20 other journalists, top of their game, around you. But in every room, there's always someone who's known as being a truly great journo that stands themselves apart from the crowd. If you look at that journo who stands out, what is it about their questioning that has them stand aside from the rest? I think that they're, they're not asking the obvious question. You know, too often the other journalists in the room are asking the question that is expected in that situation. Um, they may be asking questions that are simply factual um, and, and probably could be answered without even asking the question. It probably could be answered by looking something up online, you know. And, uh, and the, the really good journalist is, is asking a deeper question, a more probing question, and maybe an unexpected question um, that, that uh, you know, causes the, the person on the other end of the question to really have to think before they answer. You know, the, 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 the thing about really good questions is that they, they tend to open up conversation and they tend to open up a discussion. Um, so, so I think when you ask a really good question, instead of someone giving you a very automatic answer the way they will to a, to a boring question, like, you know, how are you, you know, what do you do for a living? You know, um, instead of giving you a sort of an automatic answer, they'll give you a much, much more thoughtful answer. If your question had a lot of, um, thought behind it. I've heard you use the term, journalistic inquiry. Is there a process behind that, Warren? Is there a process behind great journalistic inquiry? Well, there is. Um, I think what, what, what journalists do is they, uh, what they should do anyway, is um, they should research very deeply before they uh, go into a situation where they're asking questions. In other words, if they, if they have the luxury of time, sometimes they're thrown into a situation without any um, a warning, you know, an emergency happens or something. But uh, but if they have the time, they should be preparing in depth, and and so the part of the the journalistic inquiry process is to is to um, do deep research on your subject, uh, figure out um, what has already been discussed about this, what's what's already known, and try to f- try to understand what is unknown and where could you dig in. And maybe get some new insights. You're always looking as a journalist for something new, right? You're looking for something that hasn't been said already by this person. Um, so you have to to get that. You have to go beyond 
the the more obvious questions or the, the the simpler questions, and you have to find a way to dig a little bit deeper. And that usually starts with doing some research, and that will point you to some interesting things that you will learn about the person, and might cause you to say, "Oh, that's that's an interesting contradiction." in this person's life and maybe I will ask them about that contradiction or how to make sense of this particular situation in their lives or something interesting they said at, at one point um, that becomes the fodder for your questions and then as, as you're when you're on the uh, scene asking questions you know as a journalist there are certain techniques you have to use also which is uh, you have to um, you have to ask the right questions at the right time you know you kind of have to build up to if you're going to be asking hard questions well you don't start right away with the hardest question you know you you build up to it um, you have to learn how to follow up um, you have to learn that when you ask a question the the initial answer you get may not be the, the full answer and you have to know how to ask the second and the third question that pulls out more information uh, from that person. It's like the three big important questions when you go to the, to the supermarket, Gaz. Where are the Tim Tams? <laughs> how much are they? And do you have more than three packets? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Is, and the fourth question is, is, is there more at the back? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you have to go armed with those critical, those critical <laughs> that, questions. But, but, you know, as a journalist, you know, you will often go armed with those, that list of questions, right? You know, the five questions I know I want to ask. But the key with a good journalist is the questions you don't come with, like the questions that you think of on the spot. Um, a lot of times those are going to be the most important questions. And that's where being able to follow up becomes really important and being able to listen uh, and listen really well. That's very important. Uh, a lot of journalists don't do that. Um, they're focused on the next question they're going to ask, and so they're not listening to the, the response, and they're missing out on a huge opportunity. So that would be something like, do you also have cherry ripe? Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or something like that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> uh, do you know, that follow-up piece I think is so important. I, I, was, I am still a huge David Letterman fan. And what I loved about Letterman was his follow-up because he would ask one single question and from that one single question, that could be a 10-minute interview because he would ask exactly. a question about the reply. Whereas I find that most conversations you're in, people will ask a question, don't really listen to the answer. They're waiting for their turn to talk and or just go into something else. And... I I think that's such a it's had such a piece of gold so early on for people because that's very actionable and it's something we could take and concentrate on and I don't know it, it just doesn't seem to be very prevalent in today's society Warren it's hard it's hard it's hard to listen that's the problem um, everybody wants to talk and and it's human nature you know you just you just you do think about what you're going to say next and. And that's oftentimes a mistake. You know, you really should be focused on what the person is saying right now. Somebody, someone described it to me as, you know, we, we treat conversations like it's a game of tennis. And so we're always thinking about how we're going to return the ball. And, um, you know, and it's a great, it's a great analogy. And, and the person said, that's just the wrong way to think about it. You really shouldn't be thinking about it as, as that because that puts too much emphasis on, on your, your stroke and what you're going to, you know, what you're going to be hitting back. And, uh, and really what you should be focused on is, is what the, the person is saying. 
Um, and it takes a lot of restraint. You know, um, mm. I, I learned from uh, uh, therapists, you know, who obviously they ask a lot of questions, but therapists and psychiatrists, um, they have to be good at holding back and not talking. And someone said, someone told me this is a funny thing. He said, um, he has, he said, I have this thing I call the weight question. Um, W A I T, which is, you should always ask yourself, why am I talking? You know, so whenever you're about to say something, you know, ask yourself that question, right? Like, should I really be talking or should I hold back? And so for therapists, you know, it's really valuable for them to hold back because Mm -hmm. when they do that, it allows the other person to talk more, um, open up more, and then they can come in when the person has fully expressed themselves. But if they jump in too quick with with an opinion or or some advice, you know, they've never really given the person a chance to uh, to say their piece. God, this is beautiful. I mean, imagine mums and dads, partners just going home today and just doing it with their children. And it is hard. And they'll probably look at you and go, yeah. you've been listening to one of those motivational podcast things, haven't you? Right, right. <laughs> because they're so, it's just so different to the expectations of what a conversation is. Yeah. Warren, the, the, book, the book title I, I loved, and it's called you know, a more beautiful question. So let's say there are questions. There are beautiful questions, but there are more beautiful questions. What makes a more beautiful question? Well, um, I think it depends on how you define it. Um, When I was writing the book, uh, and and now I'm on to a second book, the book of beautiful questions, so I'm using the same term again. the way I define a uh, beautiful question is uh, something that, that shifts people's thinking. So if you ask a question that causes someone to say, you know, oh, wow, I never really thought of it that before, or, or just mm. causes them to open up in some way, you know, like, gee, I'm really glad you asked me that. Um, I really want to explain something. Um, anything you do like that that causes that kind of a shift to me is a beautiful question. So therefore, you know, asking what's up, you know, that doesn't usually have that kind of a shift effect, you know. So, so there are very fundamental questions uh, or, or asking someone what time is it, you know. Those are just kind of basic, practical, informational questions. But to me, the question that, that causes a change in someone's uh, thinking in some way is, is really beautiful. And by the way, the change could be in your own thinking. So a beautiful question can also be something you ask yourself, um, but it has a powerful impact on on the way you're thinking about something. When, you know, when you step back and say, "Gee, why am I doing X?" and "What if I tried to come at this problem a whole different way?" When you ask yourself that kind of a question and it causes you to really just change your your whole approach, that to me is a beautiful question. So if that's happening. Just say it's in your own mind. You've got to pull yourself up to have that discussion with yourselves. Do you think sometimes, Warren, that we don't stay with questions long enough? Do you think we, because of the pace of life, the distractions we have and our addiction to distraction, is it your observation perhaps we jump to the solution too quickly? Oh, yeah. And as a society, we're not thinking and questioning ourselves enough and or staying with the question long enough? Oh, absolutely. That's one of the great problems with, with questions and particularly with challenging questions. Um, we do one of two things. Either we, either we 
jump to the solution very quickly, or if, if we can't get a quick solution, then we just abandon the question altogether. So we're, we're very trained, you know, we're somehow, somewhere along the line, we're trained to think that questions are meant to be answered immediately. And if you cannot answer it immediately, just forget about it and move on. So this causes all kinds of issues. It means that we shy away from the really difficult or important questions because we're worried we won't be able to answer them right away. So that, that willingness to step back and ask yourself about some of the things you're doing in your life, you know, the important stuff. Well, you know, you, you're reluctant to do it because in your head you're thinking, well, what if I don't have the answer? I mean, what if I don't know? And of course, that's, wrong, that's the wrong way to look at it because you want to ask the question and, and be working on it. And eventually, you probably will get to an answer. But if you don't start by asking the question then you won't get to an answer. So we have to be willing to um, live with that little bit of uncertainty, you know, that little bit of, there is a little bit, bit of discomfort that comes with uncertainty, but on the difficult questions, we have to be willing to embrace that. We have to be willing to live with that a little bit and, uh, and, and not think that all questions are going to be, you know, easily answered or quickly answered. In the book, when I talk about innovation, um, one of the things I say is that you know, all, all so many of our innovations started with someone asking a question along the lines of, why hasn't someone come up with a better way to do this? Or why hasn't someone found a better X, a better Y? And the, the innovators, what separates them from everybody else, because we're all asking those kinds of questions. We're all walking around every day saying, why hasn't someone, you know, made a better such and such? This is so annoying. We're all doing it. But the difference with the innovators is that they take ownership of that question. So they don't just ask it. The rest of us ask it like a complaint, and then we forget about it. But the innovator takes hold of that question, why hasn't someone come up with a better X, and stays with it and says, well, you know, what if, what if someone were to try to come up with a better X? What would they do? Where would they begin? And they, they stay with it, and eventually that's what, gets, that's what makes them innovators. They're willing to take ownership of the question. I've heard you talk about Netflix, and you said that Netflix was born out of a question. Now, I suspect that would yeah. have been in the mind of like a Reed Hastings. Yeah. Do you, do you know the actual question that he posed in his own mind or confronted that led to what we have now as a terrific brand in Netflix? Yeah, it was very simple. It was, it was, and it was just similar to what I was just talking about. It was sort of one of those complaining kind of questions where he had, he had um, been renting videos from the, the blockbuster uh, chain. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they, the way that operation was set up, if you returned your videos late, you were hit with very large late fees and that's what happened to him. He returned his movies, uh, you know, a few days late or even a week late, I think. It, they were pretty late. And so there was a big, you know, penalty fee that was, only, you know, practically the cost of the movie, you know. So, um, so he was very annoyed by that. And he was just saying, why, why do I have to pay these late fees, you know? And, and why hasn't someone come up with a different system that makes more sense? And that was what got him started on the whole idea of, Maybe there should be a better way that people uh, rent these these movies, um, these video. At the time, we were talking mostly about videotapes, you know. And uh, uh, he he was just thinking, you know, 
you could set up a different type of monthly system, a monthly club, almost like a health club, and you belong to the club and you get your movies that way. And there's no, there's no time thing that you have to watch it that day. You know, it's, it's a different business model. So that's what led him to start working on Netflix. But it really started with that, that why question that was kind of complaining, complaining about what he saw as a, um, something that was missing. Uh, something that didn't make sense or wasn't good enough. And he, he, that got him thinking about how to improve the situation, and then he stayed with it and, uh, and turned it into a business. And, and one of the things I, I say in the book is that um, you, know, you have to take ownership of the question, and then eventually you're probably going to have to find other people to help you work on the question. Because in this day and age, you know, most things can't be solved by yourself, so you first you have to you know take ownership of the question and maybe work on it yourself for a bit, and then you have to find other people uh, who are who are going to work with you on this venture uh, to answer the question to try to provide the answer to the question. But um, but if if you look through if you look yeah if you look through Silicon Valley and all, all the centers of innovation around the world, you're going to see these types this type of question asking uh, going on all the time. That's gold. 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 If that's gold, Gary, does that mean it's questionable gold? <laughs> beautiful gold. Beautiful gold. This is beautiful gold. <laughs> now, I want to plug a few things together here, Warren, because something you just said was asking yourself the question about what's missing. And I think that is such a profound question, whether we are a sole operator or whether we run a Fortune 500 company to sit with our customers or clients and say what's missing. However... The other part that I'm curious about your perspective on is in order to do that as a leader, something you said before is, what if I don't know the answer? So I suspect we're asking ourselves the question, but as a leader, some people have the perception that if I'm the leader, I have to have all the answers. So in order to ask a more beautiful question, I guess what we're also saying perhaps is that a leader has to have good self-awareness and confidence in themselves to sort of drop the ego and say, well, I've got this question, but I don't know the answer. Is that fair? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, that's what has to happen. And, and the, the interesting thing is a lot of leaders are not comfortable with that, but I think in most cases they're wrong, <laughs> you know, because people are going to respond to it better than they think. Um, the problem is that They've probably been trained a certain way, uh, you know, going through business school or whatever, um, going th- maybe g- going through a traditional old-fashioned kind of business where, you know, it was assumed that the leader is the person with all the answers and that you have to be very authoritative. You can't show any weakness. You know, you have to be – all of these kind of rules that were associated with the, the leader uh, traditionally – I don't think it's as true anymore. I think the world has changed and people, people have changed. Um, their attitudes have changed. I think, um, you know, now if we look at someone who, is, who acts as if they have all the answers, we're more likely to think less of that person because, <laughs> you know, we're smart enough to know that that person is wrong. You know, that, that, that nobody, first of all, the, the world is too complex now. Business is too complex um, nobody is walking around with all the answers anymore if they ever were. So I think people are, people are sort of uh, more savvy about that now. And, 
I think if you show people that you are a, a, um, a questioning leader and you have the confidence to do that, and it takes confidence because, you know, you have to be willing to show a little bit of vulnerability and, and assume that people will still follow you even after you show vulnerability. So it takes confidence to do that. You know, most, uh, a lot of leaders are, are scared of doing that. They're, they're nervous that as soon as they show any weakness – that everyone will jump on them, you know. So it's it's a it's a shift that's that's happening now. I think in the world of leadership, uh, it's a transition to a new kind of leadership, and uh, uh, away from the old, you know, authoritarian uh, guy who has all the answers uh, to more of a enlightened leadership. I would say where you you uh, are honest with people. You're a little more honest about what you know and what you don't know. Um, you're a little more collaborative with people. You're sort of inviting them to be part of figuring stuff out instead of saying, I'm going to figure it out and tell you what to do. You know, in the modern company, I don't think that works as well. You know, I think now we're, we're moving into a more uh, collaborative world where people expect when they come to work to be treated like intelligent human beings. They don't really want to be treated just like a you know, workers, you know. So, um, so there's all kinds of reasons that are causing this change. And I think the good leaders, the, the, the leaders who are capable of, of balancing humility and confidence, they're going to be the ones who adapt to this new world uh, much better than the, the more traditional style of leader. I heard you make a statement, which I, I loved. You said, to ask a beautiful question, we need to push aside assumptions. That's kind of what you just sort of lent into, wasn't it? That leaders have to push aside the assumptions of what they're supposed to do. But then I guess in yeah. a Netflix sense, push aside the assumptions of what industry says is best practice in that industry. So can you just talk a little bit about that, about how assumptions hold us back from making beautiful questions? Yeah, um, uh, basically assumptions are the things we think we know already or that are known, right? And um, oftentimes what we know is not even accurate. It's not even true. Or maybe it was true um, last year, but it's not true anymore because things are changing so fast. So I think when we are operating on assumptions, um, we just always have to be challenging them. Uh, we always have to be saying, you know, is this, is this thing I think in my head really true? Or is this thing I believe about my customer or about the industry I'm working in, is it really true or is it some kind of conventional wisdom that is actually pretty old and maybe never was that true in the first place? Um, you have to constantly be asking that kind of stuff, especially in a world where everything's changing so rapidly. So I think that's one of the challenges for, um, for leaders and for, and for all of us, really, is to, is to always be using that, that questioning tool uh, that ability we have to question and using it to uh, challenge uh, everything in the world around us on a fairly regular basis. doesn't mean you should be doing it every minute of the day. You know, you might drive everyone crazy if you did that. But, um, but I think on a semi-regular basis, you should be stepping back from your routines from the things you accept and believe in and just stopping to ask, yeah, now wait a minute, you know, why do I why do I think 
think that way or why mm. do I do my job that particular way? And does it really make sense? Have I thought about the other way of thinking or another way of doing? Uh, have I really considered other possibilities? And, uh, and when you do that, you know, you, you're opening up your, your mind to, to lots of uh, new possibilities and new ways of doing things. And I think that's, that's what we all need to do. It, it's also tied in with critical thinking. You know, it's, it's, that's what critical thinking is all about. And, you know, if you're going to be a good critical thinker, you have to be willing to step back from the biases you have, the assumptions, the things you think you know. You just have to try to step back every now and then and, and just challenge yourself you know, to think, uh, you know, why do I think this? And uh, what's the evidence behind it? When the director of Wall-E, which was an animated movie, which won an Academy Award, when he stepped up to receive the Academy Award and he made a speech and he said that he wanted to thank Steve Jobs, who at that time headed up Pixar, for creating an animated safe house, like an innovative safe house. And I always remembered that. I thought, wow, imagine working in a place where it was a safe house, where you could try things, you could say things, you could experiment, and the boss would go, that's what we're here for. That, that's, that's what we're about. Yeah. Hearing yeah. you talk about this, Warren, it almost makes me feel like you need a, a beautiful question safe house, which is a leadership issue. Yeah. A, leader, a leader sets that tone. Have you noticed that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, one of the things I've been talking, I, I go around now to companies sometimes and, and talk about this issue. And, um, you know, one of the things I say to them is, I think what companies need is, is a culture of inquiry. And uh, it just means you establish an environment or a culture where people feel very comfortable asking questions. And they're, they're allowed to question basic things like, uh, you know, why, is the, why, do we, uh, uh, why are we pursuing this particular um, line of business? Uh, or what about this process we have in place that we've had in place for the past 10 years? Um, is it, is it the best process? Uh, is there something we could do to improve it? Uh, does it really make sense? So I think that kind of questioning is, uh, is really important for any organization, but they have to create a culture where people will, will feel comfortable doing it. And also, where their questions will be taken seriously. And, you know, um, someone will think about those questions, decide if there's some merit to the question, and if there is, start to act on it or start to do something about it. So that's not easy to set up a culture like that. And, uh, you know, I don't know that anyone's really done it yet, but I think some organizations are moving in that direction. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, quite, it's quite challenging. And by the way, you mentioned Steve Jobs. And uh, there was a great quote from Steve Jobs that is, pertains to what we're talking about right here. And uh, Jobs was asked, uh, this is back in the 90s, um, he was asked if, what was the most important thing he'd learned about running a company, about running Apple. And, um, and he said the most important thing he learned was he discovered how important it was to go around to every part of the company and keep asking why. Um, so he would go to a department and he would ask the head of that department, why are you using this particular system or why are you doing it this way? Um, whether it was the shipping department or the accounting department, you know, why are you, why are you following this procedure? Why are you using this accounting system? Um, and he would challenge people to have to answer 
that question on a regular basis. And he said by doing that, it, it made sure that the, the company was always thinking about what it was doing and never just like coasting. Um, and he said that was hugely important. So that's kind of what we're talking about here is like uh, if, mm. if you have a culture of inquiry, uh, a culture of inquiry is designed to try to get people to ask those kinds of questions of themselves and of the people they're working with on a regular basis. It almost sounds like this is becoming something we can exercise in our own mind, Warren, the same way we go to the gym to exercise our muscles or we run to exercise our, our bodies. And it almost sounds like this is something that we need to exercise to create a habit of the mind. And something I heard you say was that when we ask questions of ourselves, it says to our own brain, hey, think about this. Yeah. <laughs> I just, right. It's an invitation to think. Yeah. yeah. It's an invitation for your brain to think. Yeah, it's yeah because it's interesting. You know, questions are very inviting. Um, they uh, they're like puzzles that you almost can't help working on. You know, so so if you're trying to get yourself to solve a problem, let's let's say um, you, one of the things you can do is like put it in the form of a question. You know, how how might I find a better way to do X, Y, and Z? And, you know, get it written down as a question and then think about it. And uh, it, it can be pretty effective at challenging your brain to go to work on it. Uh, research has shown it's actually more effective than, than writing it down as a statement. You know, if you're trying to get yourself to do something and you, you, you phrase it as an order you're giving yourself, I must do a better job at X, that's less effective than asking yourself, how might I do a better job at X? Um, your brain just responds better to the invitation than to the command. So, uh, so it's an interesting thing. And, and I think yeah, you're right in what you're saying. We, it's, it is like a, like a mental practice that we can all get into the habit of doing. It involves, uh, sometimes it involves slowing down a little bit because you can't necessarily do questioning if you're moving, uh, you know, a hundred miles an hour all the time. Um, it's, uh, it's, um, it's thought of sometimes as slow thinking. You know, there was a, the f famous book done by Daniel Kahneman, the psychologist, and he talked about um, uh, thinking fast and thinking slow. And, um, and questioning is a form of slow thinking. So it's the opposite of like gut, gut reaction, going with your gut, you know. It's, it's very different from that. And so – you have to, you know, kind of train yourself to do more of that and maybe less of the reacting on gut, uh, going on emotion, um, going on assumptions, going on habit. That's all fast thinking. You know, when you do stuff without really thinking about it, you just kind of do it. And, um, you know, that's fine sometimes. Sometimes you do have to move fast. Sometimes there is no time for reflection. But when you, when you have the luxury of of time for reflection you should use it and you should step back every now and then ask yourself questions and uh you know uh think about other possibilities as opposed to just going on on gut history would show that kids are born with this inquiry kids are born with a bajillion which is more than a billion questions and right. it seems that somewhere along the way that sense of curiosity, that sense of asking a beautiful question or more questions starts to diminish. 
At what point do we start to lose this childhood sense of inquiry and discovery? And, and does, it, does it come back as we get older? Is there, a, is there a tipping point where we lost this thing and we get into being a grown-up? Is there a sense where, where do we lose it? And as we get older, do we get it back again? I don't think it's ever totally gone. Um, I think what happens is we learn, we learn to suppress it. Uh, we learn to suppress that curiosity and that, especially that, um, that willingness to ask questions in front of other people. Um, we may still be asking questions in our own minds, um, but uh, we, we, we tend to uh, tamp down the, uh, the habit of asking questions uh, with other people around. And that starts very early. You know, that starts basically starts as kids go into school. Um, so, so they're asking a lot of questions when they're four or five years old, but a lot of those questions are being asked at home and, you know, they're in the safety of their home and they're asking their parents, um, or their siblings, you know, and they feel very safe doing that. Kids feel very safe doing that. And then once they get to be in a classroom environment, um, they're around other kids, their age and their peers, um, Gradually over time, it seems like this fear of questioning starts to starts to sink in there, and and it's uh, you know it's it's fear of looking stupid. You know you don't want to look stupid in front of your peers. That's the worst thing that can happen, right? So so it causes us to hold back. And then the other thing that happens is that just the way a lot of education systems are designed, the way a lot of classrooms function. There's not a lot of place for questioning. You know, it's like um, it gets pushed to the end of the class if there's time and it gets treated like an afterthought and there's no, re- there's no um, reward for it. You know, you get rewarded for your answers. You know, if you answer the teacher's question or if you give the right answers on a test, that you get rewarded for. But there's no reward for asking a good question, you know. So I think kids – pick up on all that at a pretty early age and the combination of, of fear and then just feeling that questions aren't valuable. They're not really worth much, you know. Um, it all starts to, um, you know, uh, it all starts to come together. And then the last big factor, of course, is that, is that as you get older, you start to feel like you know, you know. So why should you ask if you know, right? It's like you get that sense of, I'm I'm figuring out how this game works. I know uh, I, I know everything I need to know. Uh, I don't really, um, you know, I'm not really going to ask a bunch of questions because I kind of know. And if I don't know, then I don't care. So, um, you know, that's an attitude that kind of develops over time with, with young people too. So the, the challenge is to try to reverse that attitude as as kids are growing older and and I, I always talk. I talk to schools a lot, and I, I always say, if if we could make questioning cool, that would be a wonderful thing. If we could make <laughs> if we could make kids think asking a question is like the coolest thing they could do, um, that's that gold. would be a great that would be a great accomplishment. And I don't know, you know, that's not easy to do. What an amazing mission or purpose to have! Yeah, I, it's it's great. I mean, that's that that's that's one of the things I'd like to see happen, and uh, and you know, it it should be because you know, uh, question asking is actually cool in a way. It's it's a very renegade thing to do. It's um, it's something that explorers do and rule breakers do that. 
So I think maybe that's one of the things that we should be conveying to kids is that, you know, cool people actually do ask questions. Um, the, the innovators, the inventors, the artists, the musicians, you know, a lot of the, those people are questioners. And so I think we need to get that concept across. Do you know something that is very interesting when you talk about the corporate world? I reckon 99% of people who do presentations who aren't typically keynote speakers, but people who are having to get up and make a presentation to team members or clients or whatever, 99% would be, this is the agenda for the conversation and I'll be taking questions at the end. <laughs> what you've just made me think of is that we are conditioning ourselves to say questions aren't that important to have at the front of the presentation. <laughs> They'll be the last right. thing we'll do if we get time. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're just right. conditioning ourselves to ask less and less the older we get. And it happens in to be a boardroom right now. Someone just said, I'll answer questions at the end, time permitting. Time permitting, that's right. And then, and then when they do get to it, if they get to it, they ask, you know, any questions as if, <laughs> and it's, it's you know, crickets. what is sort of, yeah, what's sort of uh, uh, suggested is that, you know, there probably shouldn't be any, but are there any, you know, like it's sort you know what I mean? It's sort of like suggesting that it would be weird if there were any questions, you know? <laughs> so, so, you know, they probably should at very least rephrase that to something that sounds more like, you know, I know there are questions. Who has the first one we should talk about? Or let's start with the first one. You know, just to let people know, it's not like you're expecting there not to be questions. You want there to be questions. And um, so there's all kinds of things like that that have to be changed in terms, you know, the the signal that you're sending to people. Because I'll tell you these, uh, I I hear all the time from uh, you know, from leaders, business leaders, they'll say, you know, I, I hold a big meeting and at the end of the meeting, I ask any questions and nobody raises their hands. I don't know what's the matter with these people. And, um, you know, what I say to them is that you're just doing it the wrong way. You know, you're creating an environment where they don't feel, in that moment, they don't feel comfortable. I guarantee you they have questions, but they just don't feel comfortable in that moment asking. I'm very respectful of your time. So I've got a couple of more quick things. The one that I am very curious about. I just finished reading Cal Newport's new book called Digital Minimalism, which I love. He's great. Yeah. And I think we're going to hear a lot more about that. I think he, that book is just starting to be talked about. I think there's going to be an avalanche for him over the next couple of years because it is a very profound piece of work, which also gives you solutions. Now, one of the things he said in there was the average person uh, spends 57 minutes a day on Facebook. So some more, some less, let's just use that as a number to work from. And what I find when you're talking to people is that we are very sceptical. So we are spending a lot of time on digital devices and we're becoming more sceptical because everything you and I say, people within 60 seconds could get three data points to search to back that up or to say, actually, you guys are full of it. Is search in your mind with the research you're doing, the conversations you're having with big business and small business, is search having an impact on our own sense of inquiry, curiosity and thinking in our own mind, let alone doing it through a device? Well, I think, um, you know, what if we're talking about like uh, using Google searches to, to, you know, to answer your questions, um, I think the biggest effect that has is um, to create this false impression that all questions are easily answered in 
10 seconds, you know? And, um, and I, I think that, that adds to the idea of a little bit of what we were talking about earlier, that idea that people aren't willing to spend time with a question. Well, it's partly because we live in a society where we, we have come to believe that we've, we can now answer questions really quickly and really easily. And, um, and so, so that kind of, that function of, of Google search is, uh, it, it has a negative effect in, in terms of our curiosity. I think it, it dampens our curiosity a little bit. Um, curiosity is, is something that has to build. Uh, so, so actually, you know, the more challenging it is to learn about something or figure something out, the more your curiosity builds. But if it's too easy, if, if it seems like it's too easy to get the answers, then there's no chance for your curiosity to build up. So it's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a weird effect that I think the world of, of tech, that technology, this instant answer technology is having on, on questioning and on curiosity. Oh, that's gold. That is gold. On the other hand, let me just say, let me just say there's, a, there's a flip side to it too. Well, he's backing out of the gold. Well, yeah, I don't want to be, I don't want to be just putting down. I don't want to be putting down Google search because it also can sometimes help your curiosity. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, that's it, right. It gives you a place to start. Like if you're wondering about something, um, you know, you, you want to, gee, I, I, I have this thought and I'm wondering about it. You have somewhere to go at least to get started. You can go right on Google and find out what people are saying about that subject. So here's the bottom line to me, okay? Google search is good as long as you use it as a starting point yeah. and don't don't assume that it's the answer to everything because it won't answer the really powerful, important, complicated, tough questions. It can't. It can't answer those. But it can, it can give you a start. It can give you some place to start on your journey. And I think Cal Newport's book, as you mentioned before, I think that's a, a very strong point that Cal makes and then gives us some stepping stones to make sure that you don't hate the you don't hate the game. It's about the player, right? It's about now, how you use it. Like it, it, exactly, technology yeah. is always that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Now, Bill Clinton said the best question he was ever asked ah. was a child at a school put their hand up and said, "Mr. Clinton, if you're in a baseball team, what position would you play?" And he said. That was the most profound question he'd ever been asked. And when you think about it, it tells you a lot about who you are by where you would play and your rationale for choosing that position. Yeah. As a person who is a questionologist that you said at the head of the show, what's the most beautiful question you've ever been asked? Oh, wow. Well, I can tell you that what I feel was one of the best questions that I heard someone ask, and then I, they weren't asking it directly to me, but I heard someone asking this question, and then I, I liked it so much that I, uh, I started using it myself. And, and now it's become, um, it's become very popular because uh, lots of other people were hearing this question being asked uh, as well, and now it's become a really popular question. I'm seeing it in lots of places. Uh, but the, the question is... Um, what would you attempt to do if you knew you couldn't fail? I thought that was a great question the first time I heard it. And, you know, what it's designed to do is challenge you to put aside your fear of failure just for a minute and think about 
if if there was no possibility a possibility of failing, what would I then? What would I try? What would I be willing to try to do? And um, so uh, it now gets used a lot uh, by you know companies in uh, Silicon Valley and lots of other places um, as a as a a challenging question to get yourself to think more uh, ambitiously or more expansively. So, um, but when I first heard that question, it was about, gosh, it was about six or seven years ago. And I, I heard a woman, uh, saying it at a, at a, a speech. And I, that question just blew me away because I thought, mm-hmm. wow, that, that is just such a useful question. It's so powerful. So, that was one of the things that you know. One of the when I started with beautiful questions, like that was one of the ones that really, um, you know, I, I grabbed onto and said, "Yeah, this is what I mean by beautiful yeah. questions." You know, when you can articulate a question that will cause people to think differently or uh, approach a subject differently, um, you know, that's that's really really powerful. Uh, the other question that. Um, I love is in the book, which is the Polaroid question, right? It's, it's the, the four-year-old girl asking her father, who went on to found the Polaroid company and the Polaroid instant uh, camera, um, she wanted to know why do we have to wait for the picture? When someone takes my picture with a camera, why do I have to wait? Why can't I see it right away? Because back in those days, you know, you had to send it out to the lab, and it took a week before you saw anything, you know. And he said, the father, Edwin Land, said when, when she asked him that simple question, why do we have to wait for the picture, it basically changed his world. Because it, mm-hmm. he, he, it, she was challenging an assumption. A four-year-old girl, right? But she was challenging an assumption that every, everyone assumed – that's just the way it works with photography. Yeah, you have to wait. You have to wait for the picture. And, um, and he said when she asked that question, it made him really change his thinking. And all of a sudden, he started to say, well, wait a minute. What if you, what if you didn't have to wait? You know, uh, imagine the possibilities. Imagine how much people would love it if they could see their picture right away. Well, how would you make that happen? What would have to happen? Uh, well, you'd have to have a dark room inside your camera, basically. Well, how do you do that? How do you make that happen? So basically that question, you know, that's another example of one of those amazing questions that comes out of nowhere and just changes, changes your world. Great story. Uh, before we find out where to track you down, if there was, what is, what is a, what is a song that has right. a beautiful question in the title that is your favorite Oh, that's an easy one. It's by Elvis Costello. Oh. And the song, the song is, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding? <laughs> <laughs> Elvis Costello, title? we have never, ever even mentioned or gone down that laneway. My goodness, that takes me back. What's so funny about peace, love, and That's my favorite question title uh, in a song. Although I have lots of songs with question titles, I, I started collecting them on my website, and uh, I think I'm up to like 70, 75 oh, uh, really? songs that have a question for the title. You know, who'll stop the rain? Have you ever seen uh, the rain? Have you ever two, seen two the rain? Two songs, that's a great two song. question titles. For, that's that's Creedence Clearwater Revival. They had two songs 
both with questions for the title, and both questions were about rain. They were both about rain. Imagine that. Yeah. So anyway, I have seventy-five. Uh, I have seventy-five wow. of those. Who wrote the book of love? And you know, when will I be loved? And uh, when will I know, be famous? Was, yeah, that's right. That's, that's, a question, that's a beautiful question we ask ourselves. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> hey, listen. Be, before we go too far down the song track, I, I've I've got to get you to answer one of the own one of your own questions you just posed which which yeah. would be that one that you mentioned that that if you could do anything without fear of failure what would you do what would be your answer to that oh gosh you know i don't think i've i i don't think i've answered it yet it's funny i know what i'm trying to do um in uh in the largest sense and um i i know that my my beautiful question i would say is um how might i spread the word about questioning through the business world and also through the education world. I'm, tr- I'm sort of pursuing those two tracks, those two questions on parallel tracks. And um, if there were no chance of failure, probably what I would do is um, I would probably pick one of those tracks and just go 100% into it and just devote all my time every day to um, – to let's say, and it would probably be the schools track because it's. I think it's it's more important, and I'd probably go a hundred percent into you know trying to revolutionize questioning in schools, and um, and uh, it would be a it would be a worthwhile thing to do. <laughs> well, for someone who hasn't thought about it, I think that's a pretty good answer. Yeah, yeah I I, I, I got to say, Warren, I think this whole conversation's just been absolute. It's been nice. It's been top selling. It's so, so important, so valuable. It's usable, practical. People just need now to put the rubber on the road and, and do something about it and start to harden their mind and um, ask more questions. Yeah, yeah. Open up your mind. Open it up. That's, that's, yeah. that's what it is. More, There's another song. More than hardening. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's so, what it's about. More than, more than hardening. It's more about opening, being willing to slow down and open up your thinking. So Warren, where where should we send people to find out more about you and your book and work, mate? Well, the best place is through uh, my website, amorebeautifulquestion.com. And that's where you'll find that list of songs we mentioned. Uh, and if you know another song, if you know a question song and it's not on that list, you know, it, it, let me know about it because I want to know all the good question songs. But uh, But you'll also find lots of stuff about my my uh my a more beautiful question book as well as my new book I, my new book is uh the book of beautiful questions just coming out now i think i believe it's just coming out in australia now and oh, right. uh, and uh the difference with that book is it's it's more focused specifically on how do you use questioning as a leader if you're a leader of any type of an organization how do you use it to be more creative and how do you use it to make better decisions so, um, so it's a little focused. Uh, it's, I would say it's a little more practical than a more beautiful question. Um, and both books are I, I'm partial to both of them. Uh, and a more beautiful question kind of introduces you to the idea of questioning and innovation and all that. And then the second book is like focusing on a few specific areas where you can use questioning in your life. Well, I've got to say, I was looking forward to this. A lot today, Warren. This has been this is this is a subject very close to my heart as, as an interviewer. Um, you've got your list yeah. of songs with with questions in the title. I've got a list of questions that I hear great interviewers from the Parky and Letterman's and 
Dentons mm. and all the greats of the past. And uh, this topic, I think, is just so, so critically important for us in life, particularly I think the thing where the Robbo and I are very passionate about is how we bring this into the home with children, how we bring it into the schools with children. To, yeah. To raise children to be princes and princesses of possibility and that's going to come from yep. curiosity and questioning everything. So, oh, yeah. mate, thank you very much. It was just it was such a delight talking to you. I honestly could talk to you for three hours about this because there's so much to dig into. Maybe sometime once the book is out and about and doing its thing, we might get you back again because I do have lots yeah, more questions to ask you. Yeah, I'd love to, to come back you. and do, yeah, do part two of this. Absolutely. It was a great conversation and uh, thank you guys for, for asking such good questions. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show. I'll be coming to see you. Okay, confession time. Interviewing someone whose specialty is questions. Were we a little bit nervous before that one? Not a little. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, though, mate. Good interview. Great interview. That's part of it, just stepping up to the plate to go, this is going to make you uncomfortable. It's, you know, embracing the suck. This is... And I, I've got to say, I think the stuff he talks about, um, and it's interesting because there are certain threads that go through our show and we hold ourselves to a standard of great guests, great questions, great production without taking ourselves too seriously. That, that's our recipe. And I just think if people took the time in anything they do with their friends, with their work, with their social groups, with their footy team to go rather than just ask a question take the time to think of what's it because the framing of a beautiful question I absolutely love and it reminds me of Philip Hesketh from the UK who was a mm. guest on our show oh, a long gee, time ago yeah season four maybe no not even season two or three I would season suggest two. yeah and he was a sales expert like the guy was top of his game and he told I don't know if you remember the story maybe he told a story about going in to buy a new car and the salesman yes. spent <laughs> a half an hour with him yeah and he was talking about things that were of complete no consequence to Philip. And he said, the most powerful question we can ask anybody is, what's the most important thing about to you? And he said, that car salesman had said to me, what's the most important thing about buying a car for you? He would have known straight from the get-go, it was about, can I get my golf clubs in the back? But instead, he wasted a half an hour on things that were of no consequence because he missed that hotspot. And I just think that that, that that is a beautiful question. If you're sitting in front of somebody, what's the most important thing about this party to you? What's the most important thing about this pitch to you? What's the most important thing about this project to you? What's the most important thing about this recruit for you? You get to the hotspot. And I, I, love, I just love the idea of asking a more beautiful question. It's not only that, it sort of gets you to the heart of the matter straight away, doesn't it? You yeah, know, it's sort of exactly. like... Wow, if you want me to solve your problem, there's there's a good place to start. Well, you've got to know the problem. So That's right. get the hotspot yeah. of the problem. That that makes That's it right. all the difference. Totally. So the big question, the big beautiful question to finish the show is tell me a song that we can play out with that has a question in the title. Warren gave us his uh, as the driver of the big red bus. What's yours? Well, I can give you 50 if you like, because <laughs> while you were wrapping up that interview, I jumped onto um, amorebeautifulquestion.com, which is Warren's website, and you'll find the link to that in the show notes. Yes, sir. There's 50 question songs there. I've picked one. See if you agree. Uh, think London. Think late 70s, early 80s. Bit of a punk band. Song with a question in it. 
Is the lead is the lead singer Joe Strummer? Well, yes. Oh, the next the next hint was going to be the lead singer's name has something to do with a guitar. So yes, it would be. <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell you? I saw these guys live mm. when I was a punk, literally living as a punk back in the gee, it must be the seventies or early eighties. Wow! At Cloudland, which was a famous live gig in. Brisbane and the yeah. floor was sprung. So oh, when really? all the punks were pogoing, you had to hit the up <laughs> because if you did the down on the up, it would literally break your back. It'd break your legs. Yeah, and totally. All the punks were pogoing to the band is The Clash. And I kid you not, I was leaving the floor by two and a half to three feet every time you pogoed. Wow. <laughs> was the so, show good? Oh, mate, it's The Clash. Wow. Jeez, you're taking me back now, brother. Yeah, Oof. there you go. So listen, when you were watching The Clash, did you stay or did you go? We're out. Darling, you got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? If you say that you are mine. I'll be here till the end of time So you got to let me know Should I stay or should I go It's always tease, tease, tease You're happy when I'm on my knees One day is fine and next is black So if you want me off your back Well, come on and let me know Should I stay or should I go? Should I stay or should I go now? Should I stay or should I go now? If I go, there will be trouble Decisions bugger me. If you don't want me, set me free. Exactly whom I'm supposed to be. Don't you know which clothes even fit me? Come on and let me know. Should I cool it or should I blow? The 
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time. <laughs>